Turn to Exodus chapter 20, um, if you would, and maybe you'll find a Pokemon there. Uh, I don't even know what that means, but I mean, the whole world has gone nuts searching for little Pokemons, um, and I'm, I don't know what these guys are, but is there one of them named Pikachu? I mean, isn't that a weird name that there's a little doll named Pikachu or Pikachu or whatever it is? I don't know what's going on, but if you're hunting Pokemons... Um, God bless you. We got some volunteer work at the church um, that you can help us do. But in Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. We've been studying them all summer. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles you can use. If you have a smartphone, you can download our app, Journey Church International. The Bible and all the notes are built into that. If you still like to use a Bible and paper and a pen, reach in your bulletin and pull out your notes. Um, Because today we finish this series that we're calling The Ten. Uh, which is just very simply God's Ten Commandments, but we're looking at the Ten Commandments through the lens of Jesus' teaching on them. So God's commands with Jesus' insights, Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible, wave at our ushers. They'll um, they'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep this one. We've given away more than a 1,000 since our church started. Uh, We read all Ten Commandments, and we come back, and we study one at a time, and here's what we hear in Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone Guiltless who misuses his name. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Commandment number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And there are the Ten Commandments. We've been studying them all summer. And as we have studied the commandments, we've learned what a relationship between us and God is supposed to look like. And we've said every week that we've studied, before God offered us any rules, he offered us a relationship. God said, I'd like to be in relationship with you. I would like for you to be my treasured possession. I'd like you to be very special to me. I would like for you to be a kingdom of priests, which basically means I'd like for you to be a nation that represents me before the rest of planet earth. So when people want to know about God, they can look at you and see who I am. I want you to be a holy nation, which means set apart for a special purpose. I want you to be on mission and live on purpose, the entire nation of you. And if you want to do that, we can have a relationship. And the people of Israel said, yes, we do want to do that. And God said, great, here's what that relationship has to look like. And he gave us the Ten Commandments that teach us how to love God effectively, that teach us how to love people effectively. The first four commandments are all shaped on how we love God well and obey God well. The last six all have to do with people, but six through ten specifically have to do with our treatment of people who are not in our immediate family, just humanity, the human beings in our life. 
And when we dig deep into commandments 6 through 10, as we've done the last few weeks, we see commands against harmful actions like murder and adultery. God said murder is the taking of a life. Adultery is really the taking of a family. You kill a family when you commit adultery. We've learned about harmful activities that you shall not steal from people. We learned last week about harmful words. We were taught to put on our Jesus suit and grab some baked apple pie and listen to Metallica. If you were here, you know what that means. If not, you're like, what did he just say? You got to go back and listen to it. Um, But we learned how our words can be harmful against people. And then in commandment number 10, today we're going to learn about harmful desires. Commandment number 10 could could be called the internal command. And that's kind of what our Bible study is titled today, the internal command. Because commandments 1 through 9 all have to really deal with our actions against God, towards God, against people, towards people. But commandment number 10 is just all about us. It's all about our heart. It's all about our wants. It's all about our desires. And it's interesting because God puts kind of a cap, a lid on the Ten Commandments. And he says, if, this, if you don't get commandment 10 right... None of the rest are ever going to work. So what is commandment number 10? We see it in verse 17. Here it is. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet. It's the internal commandment. Last night, my son Christian, who will be a freshman in high school, um, had a actually all day yesterday uh, his football team that he's going to play for um, had a golf tournament to raise money for the year, and then last night they had a silent auction and a live auction with one of those guys who talks really, really fast. Have you ever been a part of one of those? They're so fun. I bid on a few things I know I didn't want to buy just so the guy would like yell at me, hey, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And Danielle's like, stop, stop. Um, you know, but it was like really fun being a part of that. Um, but I have people ask me all the time because uh, I played football growing up, and I, every morning my body hurts from injuries that I got from really the age of 12 to 21. And people say, do you really want your son to play football? And I say, you know, I really don't care. I guess if he wants to, that's cool, but um, he doesn't need to. And I remember the first time uh, that I got hurt playing football as a sixth grader. I was actually playing flag football, not even tackle. Um, I broke these two bones in my lower arm, fell down, tried to stop myself, and just pop both those bones right there, right in the growth plate. And I remember I went into, you know, the doctor, and, um, you know, they kind of were twisting my arm and taking, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Uh, And the doctor said, we've got to go get an x-ray of your arm. I'd never had an x-ray before. And I said, why do we have to do that? Um, And he said this. He said, unless I can see what's inside, I can't tell what's broken. Unless I can see inside, I can't tell what's broken. That's the 10th commandment. God is saying our outward lives, I mean, if we're like really strong-willed, if we're pretty disciplined, our outward lives can tell a pretty good spiritual story. But God says, unless I can see inside, I can't really tell what's broken in your spirit. So coveting is the internal command. But if you're looking at your notes today, coveting is the internal sin that reveals itself in external sin. There's a way to x-ray coveting in your life and to see if this is something you struggle with. Now, for those of you who are like brand new to church, maybe you're here and this is your first time ever sitting in a church setting, this is a weird word to you. It's not a word that we use today in the English language. What is coveting? Coveting defined as to want very much or strongly desire something that you do not have or that you do not have much of, especially something you might see someone else having 
that you don't. James, Jesus' little brother, calls calls coveting something different. He gives it a really strong term that sounds pretty negative, but it's pretty accurate. In James 3.16, and then rolling over into James chapter 4, James says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. James says coveting really is selfish ambition. And boy, when you look at what selfish ambition causes in your life and in the lives of those around you, James begins to list the commandments and he says it's selfish ambition that causes you to do these things and to even try to use God to get these things. Let me ask you a question. What selfish ambition is bending your heart towards sin right now? What thing in your life, what thing in your heart, what desire really deep down do you want so much that you might be willing to sin to get it or that you would be willing to either treat God inappropriately or treat people inappropriately so you could get it? What thing in your heart would you be willing to step on God for or step on your neighbor for so that you can achieve something? James actually says almost all the sin in our life can be traced back to an original desire. Something we want that we just have to have so bad that we decide we're going to have it regardless of how it affects the people in our life. James 1 says this, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and they're enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James says, listen, all the problems in our life start right here, start in our heart. Listen, don't, don't blame the culture. Don't blame the president. Don't blame Congress. Don't blame your mom and dad. Don't blame your husband or wife. Don't blame your boss or the economy. James says all the things in your life that cause so much conflict, they start right here. Starts in your heart. And once your heart starts moving, kind of good luck because sin happens. And once sin happens, man, things in your life start dying. Yeah, I started studying coveting this week. Do you know that coveting was the first sin in the Garden of Eden? Like the first sin that human beings ever committed. What is sin? Falling short of God's standard, breaking God's law. The first sin humanity ever committed was coveting. If I were to ask you, what was the first sin that humanity ever committed? You would say, oh, taking the fruit in the garden. That, That actually came after wanting more than God said that Adam and Eve should have. Do you know that the first sin in the promised land was coveting? The first recorded thing that Israel did wrong when they finally got their land was a guy named Achan who coveted something and wanted something that God had not intended for him. Do you know that the first sin in the church, according to Acts chapter 5, was coveting a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira who felt that God had led them to kind of give a certain portion to what was going on in the work of God who held some back for themselves because they wanted... I mean, I want you to think about this. Think about God's three greatest creations, the three greatest moments, the three greatest gifts to humanity. I mean, could there have been any greater gift than the Garden of Eden? Yet Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden said, I'd like a little more. Could there have been any greater gift to the people of Israel who'd been a nation of slaves for 400 years to when they finally get their own land and independence, they say, I'd actually like just a little more than what God has attended me. 
Could there have been any greater gift for the people of God than the church that would take care of one another except some people would say, I see what the church is doing for others, but I would like just a little bit more for myself. When you look at what God has done, all of it begins to come undone by coveting, by this need to have just a little bit more. And the process of coveting, we read in Genesis 3, 6, 7, 31. It's interesting, two stories, thousands of year, years apart by two people who would never meet each other, who said the same thing was happening when I began to move away from God, step on God, step on people to get what I want. In Genesis 3, 6, when God says, why did you do what you did? He said, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Thousands of years later, in a town called Jericho, a, a Hebrew slave named Achan would be in there. And the rules was, you can, go, you can go in, but you can't take anything. And he did. He stole some stuff for himself. And when they finally found out, they said, Achan, why would you do what you did? Listen to his excuse in Joshua 7.1. Does it sound familiar? When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, so I took them. What does coveting look like? The process of coveting is three things. I saw, I desired, so I took. I saw, I desired, so I took. What selfish ambition of your life do you have your eyes set on? Do you have your heart set on? And you know that to get it in the time that you want to get it, that you have to step on God, and maybe you have to step on your family, and maybe you have to step on your friends. How many of us right now see and desire something that we're going to take, regardless of how it impacts anyone else, if God doesn't get a hold of our hearts and say, slow down? You see, we see the process of coveting, but there are some questions of coveting that I've that I've learned to ask myself, kind of what I would say in, in reverse order of trying to unpack taking desire and seeing. Here's some questions of coveting that you can answer your, for yourself, or maybe you can answer them from your spouse. What has attracted your infatuation? What do you just think about all the time? C.S. Lewis said, our daydreams reveal our idols. What do you daydream about? Like when things slow down, what are you infatuated? Infatuated with and you just think about it all the time what has captured your imagination what perfect world are you building for yourself something you see something you desire that you may step on anyone to get what are you taking your family time for your family who doesn't have enough time of, for you what pursuit are you pursuing that you're willing to step on your family for and say, you know what? Like, I know family time is important, but right now, I saw, I desired, I've, I've got to get this. What are you taking your date night for? You know how every person in this room who's married fell in love? They started dating and spending time with someone. And they fell in love and they got married. And they quit dating. And they fell out of love. And they're trying to figure out whether or not they should stay married. You see how that process builds and then declines? I say at every wedding that I've ever performed, whatever it took for you to fall in love, it will take for you to stay in love. And some of us were willing to sacrifice some selfish ambition to fall in love and to get married, but now that we're married, it's like I don't have time for my husband, I don't have time for my wife because I'm pursuing this ambition 
the selfish ambition. What are you taking God's tithe for? For those of you who are Christians and understand the principle of giving. Every time you get paid and that first 10% you're supposed to give back to God is a recognition of what he's given you the 90% for. What right now when that money comes to you, do you say, I know what God says, but right now I need God's money for this. I'm going to step on God to get it. What are you taking God's Sabbath for? What do you refuse to take a, a day of contentment and giving up control and a day of companionship? What, what, what's so important to you that God says, I want you to live your life this way, and you said, no, God, I'm going to have to live it this way because I see and I desire and I want, I want I, so I'm going I'm to take hold of that. And then we tell God, I'll pay you back. I'll, I'll catch up. I realize I'm taking your 10%, but it's an investment. One day I'll pay you back. God, I realize I'm taking your, your Sabbaths, but it's an investment. One, one day I'll pay you back. You see how dangerous coveting can be when it comes to stepping on God, stepping on our spouses, stepping over our family to pursue a desire? You know, the Apostle Paul twice refers to coveting as idolatry. He says when you covet something, it literally becomes a God in your life that you begin to worship. In Ephesians 5, 5 and in Colossians 3, 5, Paul calls coveting idolatry. He also said that coveting, because it's idolatry, coveting produces the ability for us to produce every type of sin. He said, the person who's closest to God, if they begin to covet something, they can begin to throw God and family and people away so fast because of their desire for something else. And he said it in a way that was really, really weird. Do you ever read a word that you don't know what it means, or am I the only redneck who doesn't have a proper grasp of the English language? You know, every time I study verses, I, you know, I read what people say, but I always try to read... I'll try to read a verse sometimes in 10 different English translations to like try to understand what somebody's really saying. And a lot of times I'm driven back to the original language that it was written in, the Greek language. So, okay, what was, what was Paul trying to say here? So Paul says coveting produces sin in us. Even though if we love God with almost everything, but we love something else with everything, he said it can produce every type of sin in you. Here's what he says in Romans 7, 8. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every type of coveting. So I know what coveting means, but I went back and read it in the old King James Version. Do some of you have that big, old, thick family Bible somewhere in the house or the attic or in a box that's been passed down from grandma or grandpa? It's probably in the old King James, thou shalt not, some version of, you know, of, of that. And I read it in the King James Version, and here's what Romans 7, 8 says, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence concupiscence. And I thought, that's a weird word. First I thought rot, and I thought, I thought that's iron, like rot iron. Like that's, you know, I'm not sure of how you spell it, but okay, but concupiscence, concupiscence. I thought, what does that mean? That's a fun word. It's kind of like San Francisco. You know, it's like, that's what I'm, I'm saying it over and over in my head, concupiscence. What does that mean? So I thought, I'm going to go study that word to try to see what Paul was saying. Concupiscence is a Latin word that's made up of three Latin words. Con, which means with, cupid, like we know what that one means, right? A strong love or desire for, an essence, a state of being. Concupiscence is the continual state of having a strong love affair with something. It's not being able to let go of something that maybe you selfishly have an ambition for. If you're not easily able to identify your selfish ambition, ask your wife. Because she'll tell you what she feels like she's second place to. Ask your husband. 
because he'll tell you what he always gets put to the side for. Ask your kids. Kids are really good at saying, yeah, mom and dad, this clearly is more important to you than us. Coveting is that internal thing that Paul says causes you to commit every other sin because it becomes more important than, than anything. Here's what's scary. The measuring stick of whether or not we covet is whether or not we're content. Oh, no. I read that this week, and I began to really learn it, and I thought, oh, no. Sometimes I struggle with contentment. Does that mean I struggle with coveting? Does that mean my life is open to committing all kinds of sin against my wife, against my kids, against, against God, against my church? And it's like, yeah. You see, you can tell whether or not you covet by whether or not you're content. And the Bible says that living for God and being content is a great life. I'll read you a great verse in just a minute about that. But do you know if you try to live for God, but you're not content, coveting will take over everything and you won't even live for God anymore? Did you know true contentment isn't just an absence of desire? It's actually the presence of satisfaction. 72-year-old Mick Jagger, who sang years ago, I can't get no satisfaction, just had his eighth child. There's part of his life that's being satisfied, clearly. Um, it's like, you know, good for, good for Mick. Um, But true contentment isn't just an absence of desire. It's the presence of satisfaction. One of the greatest psalms ever has a line in it that I don't think we often understand. Psalm 23, 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Maybe you've heard it read, The Lord is my my shepherd. In the New Living Translation, listen, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Is that the spirit of your heart? Like, is that the spirit of your heart today? I have everything that I need. I, like, I need nothing else in life. The Lord is my shepherd. I've got Jesus. I've got my family. I've got everything that I need. Are you satisfied today? Because the measuring stick of whether or not we covet is whether or not we are content. This week, I let my dog Rudy out to go to the bathroom and when I let him out there was like a bit like a big frog sitting like right on my back patio where Rudy goes out and he just kind of sat and looked at him for a minute when I let him out I thought this is gonna be interesting and he kind of ran past it and then he stopped and I thought oh boy he sees it and he realized what it was so he turned around and for the next five minutes my dog like just played with this frog like but you know it would jump so he put his paw on it you know not to like squash it but just to keep it from moving then he'd pull his paw off and it would hop again. And like my dog was having, so like he was wagging his tail. He thought this was like so fun. And it reminded me of something that I saw. When I first moved into my house a little more than five years ago, I was out on my back deck. We back up to a green space. And there were three or four little kids that looked like they were all under the age of three or four. And they were having like the greatest time. They're actually, their laughter was distracting. It was so loud in the backyard. And I went and I thought, what are they doing? So I stood on my deck and I watched them. And they're like these four little kids gathered around and they're looking at the ground just real quiet. And then they all start yelling and start laughing and then they get real quiet again. And they all start yelling and laughing and they get real quiet. And I thought, what are they doing? And I realized they were watching a frog that was jumping and the the frog would jump and like it would give them so much delight and then it would sit there. So they'd all get real quiet until the frog would jump again. And then they'd all be so happy. And I remember sitting there that day thinking, when was the last time I enjoyed anything in life as much as these kids are enjoying this frog? Like, when when did the moment happen when we went from 
wanting to play with a frog to worrying about it peeing on our hand and giving us warts. Like, right? Like, when was that moment where we went from satisfaction to, you know, don't touch the frog, you, you know, you'll get a wart on your hand? When was the moment? I'm trying to reach back into my memory. When was the moment where grandpa's $1 bill in the birthday card went from being the greatest gift ever to the thought of this isn't going to be enough to buy me like anything? Like, when was the moment we quit being satisfied with anything and we were never satisfied with everything? I had a pretty humbling moment this week on Tuesday evening. Uh, One of our missionaries who our church serves with from Kenya was in town. So one of our elders and I took him out to dinner and afterwards he wanted to see the building. And as we were walking him through the building, you know, he's, you know, just, he's just so kind with everything he's saying about the building. But I've got to be honest with you. God has begun to reveal to me like some of my insecurities, you know, which really insecurities always point to ego. So God's been revealing to me some of the pride and ego in my own life because almost everyone who walks into the church, and I say almost everyone, maybe a dozen, maybe 15, one of their first comments to me always is, you know, wow, I thought, you know, I thought it'd be bigger. It's really small. Like that's, you know, that's like saying to someone, hey, I heard you got married. You know, your wife's really not that pretty. It's like, you know, you don't say that <laughs> to a pastor. Like, I need you to celebrate this moment with me, you know? Like, hey, I saw the new kid. You know, it's like, no, don't. That's a backhanded compliment. Hey, nice church. I thought it'd be bigger. So, so, so I have embraced that in my spirit. Um, that this is too small. I've embraced not being satisfied with one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given our church to the, to the point of, I even turned it into a spiritual exercise. Um, Zechariah 4.10 has become one of my theme verses for our building. Zechariah 4.10 says, don't despise small things because God likes to see a thing begin. I have written Zechariah 4.10 on the beams, on the stud, on the floors of every room in the building because as I walked around and I hear people whispering in my head, I thought it'd be bigger, I thought it'd be bigger, I thought it'd be bigger. I thought, oh, Lord, everybody's going to think, you know, that our building's really, really small, but help me not despise small things. I mean, I've, I don't want to say I've, I've been overly focused on it, but I've certainly been aware of it, that, you know, we got this church, but maybe one day it'll, you know, it'll, it'll be bigger. Maybe one day we'll have the building that we need. And I'm walking through the building with our missionary from Kenya on Tuesday, and we get into the auditorium, and he looks around, and he just says, man, the people in Kenya would flip out to have a church like this. And I just thought, why aren't I flipping out to have a church like this? What is the pride in my heart? What is the insecurity in my heart? What is it that keeps me from being satisfied, not with everything, but with anything, and just thinking... This is perfect. What is it? And God said, it's coveting. It's that thing in your heart that can break everything. It's, it's, it's coveting. The reason we don't take a Sabbath, the reason we don't tithe, the reason we don't serve, all those things find a home in satisfaction. I'm so satisfied with my life, I'm just going to give this day to God. I'm so satisfied with what God's given me, I'm just going to give that 10% to Him. I'm so satisfied with everything in my life that I'm going to serve someone else who doesn't appear to have the life that I have. All of those find their home in spiritual satisfaction. And I'm beginning to learn that true contentment has two types of spiritual kryptonite. One is coveting. The second is comparison. And man, the Bible speaks strongly against comparison. President Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. 
If you're not joyful today, maybe it's because you're comparing yourself to someone who has maybe just a little more than you and it keeps you from really being satisfied with what you have. You know, if coveting makes our desires our idols, then comparison makes the lives of other people our idols. I wish I lived in a house like them. Wish I could go on vacation like them. And their kids are always dressed so nice. Wish I could drive cars like them. Wish my kids played on the same sports teams their kids did. Man, my kids never win a trophy at the end of the term. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And boy, does social media fuel this. You know, I read an article this week from scientists on comparison, and they said, we, we learn comparison from our ancestors. You said, which ancestors? The hairy ones, the apes. So here, here's what they did. They did a study and said, where, where did comparison originate? And here's the study they did. They took a bunch of monkeys who had never lived together, and for a month they gave them the same amount of grapes to eat every day, and they were all perfectly content. They didn't even appear to be interacting with each other with their grapes. But after a month, they changed it, and they gave half grapes, and they gave half bananas. And the ones with grapes, the article literally said, they went ape. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, I, you know, pun intended, I think. But the ones who had been perfectly content with grapes while everyone got grapes, when the other two got bananas, they started throwing the grapes, they wouldn't eat the grapes, they started starving themselves because they said, unless I get what they have, I don't want anything. Now tell me we don't act like a bunch of monkeys when it comes to this area of comparison. That if we don't have what someone else has, we can't be satisfied with what we... I mean, tell me that we've evolved a little bit beyond that. Apparently not. Listen to what Galatians 6, 4 says. Paul had to teach his churches this. Paul says, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Some of you need to write that verse down. And if you're like a tattoo person, go get a tattoo of that one. Like if that's your thing... Like, go get some ink today, Galatians 6, 4. And every time you look at it, remember, I'm supposed to be satisfied with my own life without comparing myself to everyone else. Proverbs 14, 30 says this, a heart, of, a heart at peace, it gives life to your body, but envy literally rots your bones. Do you know some of you, your coveting fueled by comparison is killing your families? is killing your families. Your coveting, fueled by your comparison, is killing your marriage. It's killing your kids. It's physically destroying you. I had a family many, many years ago that I led who their girls were in my student ministry, a husband from America, a wife who'd moved over from another country. They got married and they lived in a very affluent school district um, where you could tell, I mean, from the houses to the cars, people were known by their material possessions. And these girls were coming to my youth group and they kept saying, Christian, we need you to meet with my mom and dad. I need you to meet with my mom and dad. They're fighting all the time. I don't think they're going to stay together. So I went over to meet with this mom and dad and I said, hey, what's the deal? Your girls are like really, really worried. And the bottom line was basically they bought a house that an old job used to provide for. The husband had lost his job. He did not have the ability to afford the home anymore, but his wife had made him get not two, but three jobs because she said, I'm not moving. Because in that community, the home was the status. And the dad was, I mean, physically, he was killing himself. The marriage was dying. The girls were getting bitter at their mother. 
Um, and I went over and just said, what, what, are, what are we going to do here? And I, I remember looking at the mom, and she's like, you know, well, this is home for me. And, you know, the, the, ever since I moved from the country I lived into here, this is home, and, you know, this is what I'm known for. And I remember looking at her, and I said, you're going to lose your husband and your girls. And she looked at me, and she said, anything but the house. And I thought, all right. Years later, saw one of her daughters bartending at a Mexican restaurant. I used to eat that a lot. Looked real happy. Hey, how's things going? Good. She graduated from college. She was working part-time while she was getting her master's degree in something. And I said, how's your dad? Oh, he's good. You know, he left my mom. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, he left her and, um, you know, he was able to slow down. And he's like doing really, really good. I said, how's your mom? She said, I don't know. My sister and I haven't spoken to her in years. So what happened? She said, well, my dad left her because she wouldn't leave the house. We got mad because of the way she treated her dad, and she literally stayed in the house till they foreclosed, foreclosed it and kicked her out, and then she left and went somewhere. I don't know where she is. And I thought about her looking at me in the den of their like little front room living area saying, anything but the house. A lot of us aren't saying that verbally, but we're hanging on so tightly to something that it's, it's killing us. The Bible calls that coveting. When your marriage, when your faith, when your family, when your friendship comes last, coveting is coming first. Proverbs 27.20 says, Death and destruction are never satisfied, neither are the human eyes. We always want more unless we allow Jesus to have more control in our heart. So what we learn is true contentment isn't a momentary feeling. It's a permanent state of mind. Like contentment isn't a good day. It's a permanent state of mind that just says, I'm going to learn to be satisfied with who I am, with what God has given me. And I'm going to learn to love God and love people and be okay with that. You see, the first nine commandments have taught us to live a life in relationship with God. But 10 says that has to be enough for you. Like a lot of us pursue a relationship with God and our greatest selfish ambition and that ruins everything else in our relationship with God and people. So God says, here's how you live close to me. Here's how you live close to others. And then commandment number 10 says, and I want you to be okay with that. Live close to me, live close to others and be okay with that. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll learn to be content with that. Paul, like God in the commandments, says here's everything you know to stay close to God and to treat people well. But at the end of the day, like if your heart is content with that, like that is the icing on the cake. Love God, love people, and be satisfied with that. That is the icing on the cake. So how do we learn to find contentment? Some of you this week need to really go honestly answer the questions I've presented to you. And if your spouse won't do it, help them. What's attracted your infatuation? What is your heart drawn to? What's the most important thing in your life according to people who watch your life? What's captured your imagination? What's on your mind all the time? When you're doing this, you're actually thinking about this. What are, you, what are you taking your family time for? When's the last time you saw a movie or you played cards or you, you went and hit golf balls at Top Golf or you went to the lake or you went fishing? And why, why 
Why aren't you doing that? What is the reason? That, that's going to fall in that area of coveting. What are you taking your date night for? How come you never have time for your marriage? That thing could be the coveting. What are you taking God's tithe for? What, what do you need your finances to fuel your ambition for more than what God would want you to do? What are you taking God's Sabbath for? What are you selling your emotional health for? Where you're always stressed out, burned out, just fried because you won't do it God's way because you want something more than the way God has told you to go and get it. Answer these questions honestly this week and see if God paints a picture of an idol for you that may look like your job, may look like your hobby, may look like some dream you're chasing. Here's another one. Stop comparing people's best moments on social media to your messed up life that you actually see every 24 hours. You know, last night I, I was with Christian. I took a picture at his football banquet, you know, of him. He was dressed up, had his hair combed, had his football jersey on. I just finished playing a golf tournament. And people are like, oh, man, I, you know, you guys have such a good relationship. I, you know, I wish I had the relationship with my son that you had. And I said, yeah, but that's only because I didn't post this morning when I almost killed him for disrespecting me about something that I asked him to do. Like, we don't post the bad moments, you know. Hey, just thought about cussing out my son. You know, it's going to be a great Saturday. It's like, we don't... We don't post that. So we see the good moments, right? And it's like we compare somebody's very best moment to our entire life. And we think, man, you know, stop comparing yourself. Just get off social media if you struggle with that. Shut it down for a little bit and focus on your own self, Galatians 6.4. And then maybe for some of you, here's just a little challenge. Find some points of contentment in your life that you can make permanent contentment. Every time I go on vacation, I find myself more content on vacation than in my job. So I ask myself, why? I don't take my phone into restaurants with me when I eat with my family on vacations. Maybe that little point of content, maybe that can become permanent contentment. Maybe I can quit carrying my phone into restaurants. You know, actually took time with my family, you know, took time to go play son with my golf. That was a good day. Play golf with my son. Maybe when I get back from vacation, maybe that doesn't have to be a point of contentment, but maybe I can try to start doing something with my kids every week or every month. Take the little things where you think this is good and try to make those permanent in your life. Why? Because you're in a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus. And by accepting the invitation to come into relationship with him, Jesus says, here's, here's how now I want you to live your life. It's the best way. Trust me. First Peter 2.9 says this, you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God says, listen, I've got one idea to show the world who I am, and it's you. If God were here today, he would say, I believe in you. You can do this. There's a spirit in you that wants to live this way. And if you will live this way, the whole world will see what it looks like to be close to God and they'll desire that because you will look different because you are different. Contentment through not coveting what people have. So as we end this service, I'm going to ask our band to come to the stage. We're going to sing one last song. But as they come, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes.